Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. The big news is that Phoenix LiveView version 0.18 was released. So this is the release that was talked about in Chris McCord's keynote at ElixirConf. The keynote was also released publicly, so hopefully you've already checked that out. But the actual library was released, and this is a big release with a lot of big features that we've been looking forward to for a long time. They also shipped with this a new mix formatter plugin for formatting Hex templates. You know, once you started formatting your Hex templates, they're like, you got to have that. Like, I, I just need that. You got to keep it up. So they're, they're keeping that drug going. We're grateful for that. Also with this release comes a blog post. And this blog post is really helpful. It's more helpful than reading through a change log and trying to figure out what everything means. The blog post spends a lot more time talking about the significance of some of these changes and actually, you know, with code examples showing like the before and after impacts. The big changes are the atters, ATTR, little macro, and slots. ATTR is attribute, is a way of passing in what was like React props where you can specify the arguments that this component is expecting to have. You can provide default values and you can say it's required. And then compile time support will tell you you're calling this component and not passing in a required prop and give you compile time feedback on your Heeks components, which is super cool. Another benefit of these attributes and slots is that they show up in your documentation. So you get better component documentation since writing more function components for my Heeks templates, I haven't actually generated the docs and gone and looked at them to see how the attributes and slots will show up. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah, I enjoyed this change because I was always trying to get something similar previously by doing like assign new or put new. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I will manually assign some defaults onto the assigns and make sure that if you don't put one there, that there, there's some good default or something. And I don't know, it was always like, what are you trying to do? And then you would have to like validate that the things that they're passing in are correct. And now it's it's like, there's just an official way to do it now. And it's at the top of the file where you can read it. And it's really nice. Almost every component of mine would, would have have like a, a, a header, like, a, like five lines of <laughs> assigning defaults and stuff. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that they've normalized it. And and for folks that use Surface, this is all probably very familiar. Another live view update that I'm I'm excited about because I literally just implemented this <laughs> prior prior to this releasing was was uh, JS commands for focusing and focusing first. So you can imagine if you have some modal uh, that pops up, you probably want with, with a form in it, like maybe a search form or something, you probably want the focus to to go straight into that search box or, or starting on that form. And the way I had done it before is that you just kind of have to put in Phoenix hooks on the JavaScript side and, and kind of like, you know, JavaScript your way into finding the first, you know, element or input or something like that, that's focusable. And then and then doing it. But then I would also have to like wait a hundred milliseconds or something for, for, for that to, to work correctly. I don't know. It, it, it just didn't seem to work really well, but now I don't have to do that I, because now it's just built into Phoenix live view. So if I just do js.focus or focus first, um, provide, you know, the, the first element in there, you know, that that's great. And then on top of that, on the component side, you can, uh, like for in that modal example, you can restrict focus to that modal, 
or to whatever your component is. So for example, if you have like two or three fields in your modal and you don't want to allow the user to somehow tab out of that, you can wrap your modal with a focus wrap component. And now as they tab through it, they'll stay inside of that modal without jumping to some form that's underneath the modal and getting lost somehow. This is mentioned in the keynote. Uh, so he gives some good examples there. Really happy to see it. Autofocus is actually really helpful, even, even without you know having to care about accessibility concerns. It's just like really convenient, but it's also really important that uh, we're, we're getting some accessibility first, you know, minded changes uh, to Phoenix and Phoenix Live View. Yeah, you always try to put that autofocus on like the first input and there's always like some janky thing that's happening. So this should be cool to figure it out for you automatically. Yeah. Yeah, like you mentioned that point of having to wait a certain number of milliseconds because maybe there's an animation that's expanding or or bringing it in. Ah, uh, that's what it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you have to wait for the animation to finish so the DOM is totally settled before you can even focus it. So yeah, mm, that's... that sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like they've also added support for JS commands and hooks that you render outside of live view or what they call dead views. So this allows many of your core UI function components to be used across live views and regular views like modals and flash messages, dropdowns, etc. So that's that's a really interesting change there. You ever run into that problem before? <laughs> I was surprised when I did. Well, the the default auth generator, right, put you into a dead view. And so you you were forced from the beginning if you went with the auth generator to have this mixture of dead views and live views and it was this interesting balance. Yeah. For me it was my my root layout is technically a dead view, right? And and it's not until you get to that live layout where things become considered live view. But in my root layout I have the sidebar, the navigation bar, the whatever, you know, bars and and that's that's like common to all pages. And so if you're trying to send JS commands to go like highlight a link to say I'm I'm actively on this page or you know so, or or open up the 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 mobile, you know, navigation slide drawer or something like that, it's not technically part of a live view. And so I was surprised the very first time I tried to dispatch a JS command over over to it, it just didn't work because I guess the listeners weren't really set up, you know, that that high up on the uh, on the DOM. So I begrudgingly had to go back to more vanilla JavaScript, but now I don't have to. This is great. Yeah, I just love the idea of being able to have a component that has some of this JavaScript stuff, like a drop-down component or something like that, and have it be able to work in a dead view, which you know many projects are going to have those pages still, and then also use the same component in a live view and not have to duplicate implementations to for the different contexts where it's going to be used. Like that's that's really exciting. Another new feature in this version of Live View is this includes the unified link component. The link component now has attributes for href if you want to have an explicit link value or a navigate attribute, which you would use for like redirecting across live views or to other pages, or a patch, which is an update to an existing live view. So you have a more unified way of handling these different links. That's also cool because, you know, before you're always having to use these different functions. There's also a new dynamic tag that was added as well. It's a little helper for generating dynamically named HTML tags. So this is this is actually kind of cool. I, you don't find yourself needing this a lot until you start digging into like sneaky little tricky things that you're doing, like 
generating a, a library that generates forms for you or something crazy, you know? This should make lives easier for people who are maybe perhaps making fancy libraries that do things based on like <laughs> a little config that you pass it. Like my configuration is this and this. And it's like, let me build this huge form for you. It's interesting. It looks like it takes a couple of arguments, maybe like what type it is. Wait, didn't they already have like a content tag for dead views? Yes. So as I was looking at this, it kind of reminded me of content tag. I know there's in dead views, there's a content tag equivalent, which is you can define the attributes and what type it is, and it will kind of build it for you. Do you guys know how is this different from that? My impression is that this is just a componentized version of that. So now, yeah, it's it's just now using the Heeks template versus like the traditional, you know, EEX stuff, you know, like an HTML element. You can use the attribute of name and rest, right? To just kind of spread the rest of like your your values onto the onto the tag. Uh, it takes like the inner block there. A simple way to think about it is if you're familiar with the content tag function in like phoenix.html, dynamic tag is the same thing, but just for modern, you know, stuff, H-E-E-X templates. That makes sense because you have to have the open tag and end tag for an Heeks template to be able to render this. And you can't do that with a content tag. I recall that Surface had something like this as well to be able to to solve that same problem. So it's very cool just that it's uh, getting another one of those learned lessons from Surface. What I'm excited about this, uh, this is this is the end. We'll close out the the Phoenix Live View update here, but I maintain a, a library called Formulator, and it's it's essentially dead <laughs> because it was it was made for like Phoenix 1.2 long time ago, right? And everything was very traditional EEX back then. But ever since Live View came out, and definitely the Heeks template, you know, engine came out, like that stuff wasn't as relevant anymore. And I wasn't really sure what to do with it, but there wasn't enough functions like this, basically components like dynamic tag to create a library. So now maybe, maybe I can update a formulator to help dynamically create these kinds of forms and, you know, bring some consistency. But it's not so helpful though, because a lot of a lot of folks are going to be creating their own components anyway for their own styles. That's kind of the big the big idea of Phoenix Live View 18, you know, this release is helping everyone move towards componentizing their templates. That's the good stuff. So that's it about Live View. There's the Code Smells online survey being conducted by a PhD student at the Department of Computer Science at UFMG and his associate professor. So we've got a link. I know you're listening to this in the podcast and that link isn't very helpful to you right now, but please go find the podcast website. You're going to find... The Google form, they're looking for information about uh, code smells in Elixir code bases. So this study aims to understand the main code smells that can occur in any Elixir system. So they're going to ask questions about your demographics, positions, your experience, your perception of code smells. We've talked about it before, but it looks like they're starting to do some more research upon that code repository. It's really interesting because we've actually talked about this group before. They've been researching Elixir code smells for some time. We talked about them back in May and then even a couple months before that. I'm including a link in the show notes to their GitHub project with a catalog of Elixir-specific code smells. They will ask for your email address, and I think that's really just to prevent double entry, people like just slamming the survey form. They're not marketing anything like that. This is actually research that goes back into the community. So it's very cool. And next up, just wanted to mention this. There is this Strange Loop conference. The 2023 version of this conference will be the last one. So Strange Loop, it's been around since 2009. 
It's in St. Louis, Missouri, and this is going to be the last one of that. So it's not anything specific to Elixir or even functional programming, but it's been bringing together researchers, designers, and implementers of leading-edge software for a long time, and this is their final version of this conference. So if you're out in the St. Louis area or the Midwest of the United States, that might be something you want to check out. It's next September, so about a year from now, September 21st and 22nd. So you can check out a link in the show notes. Last up, I just wanted to mention a little gem I found in the Elixir 114 changelog. If you've ever used datetime.add or datetime.diff, you might have noticed how unfortunate it is that you can only use millisecond, nanosecond, microsecond as the duration. But they recently added in 114 day, hour, and minute, which I think makes these functions a lot more usable. (laughs) (laughs) I happened across it and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Great change. How did I not see this? So I just wanted to point it out. I think there's a caveat on there. So you go check out the, the hex docs on that, but there is a caveat because calendaring days especially can be a bit complicated with some gotchas in there. So they they go through what those gotchas might be, but it is pretty convenient. And if you're interested in calendars and such things, we're going to be talking with Kip Cole in an upcoming episode, which will go much deeper into some of the amazing stuff that he's doing around calendaring because he was a speaker at ElixirConf and we're looking forward to having a conversation with him. So you'll definitely want to look out for that episode. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Kat Marchin. Kat, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, everyone. Well, I'm glad you could come because when I learned about what you were doing and your arrival into the Elixir ecosystem, it was really interesting. You come out of the NPM world and the JavaScript ecosystem. You're now interested in doing things with Elixir, but also Rust. And I'm really interested to hear about what kind of brought you in this direction and what your experience has been like, you know, coming new to Elixir as well. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? All right. So I live in the East San Francisco Bay in California. So basically, I live across the bay from San Francisco. I am originally from Puerto Rico, which is going through kind of a lot right now. So I'm kind of like a lot worried. Sorry, what was the other question? (laughs) No, you mentioned Puerto Rico there. And my daughter has a friend, a very good friend who lives in Puerto Rico. And right now, yeah, they're, they're suffering from a major hurricane that came through. They're without water, running water for like at least six days. That can be really frightening. Yeah. Yeah. So my family's originally from there. I'm originally from there. I only moved here for like college and stuff. So I basically grew up there. And I currently work at Microsoft on the Visual Studio team doing JavaScript and Visual Studio tools. So basically all the JavaScript and Visual Studio support for Visual Studio 
the big one, not the not the code one. Have you been there a long time or is that a, a more recent thing? About three years, actually. So for those of us using VS Code, uh, we have maybe you to, to thank for it in some small part. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I don't work on VS Code. I work on VS, which is the big the, one. The, the big one, yeah, uh, the oh. enterprise one. The one you got to... The enterprising yeah, one. You got to pay yeah. for this one. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think there's a community edition, but it's like, it's not it's not the same, right? It is the enterprising one. And yeah, a little less popular with the JavaScript folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I would love to hear about how you ended up coming to Elixir, especially if you're working at Microsoft. You know, you're you're working with other tools. It's Elixir's probably not in your tool chain anywhere. So I'm very curious about hearing how you ended up looking into Elixir and spending any time working on anything here? Yeah, so I first heard of Elixir, like, gosh, it must have been like 10 years ago, when it was still very, very new, because at the time I was working a job that was Erlang-based. So it was actually an Erlang-based distributed application. I learned a lot about distributed systems and that in the process, like that's that was actually my second programming job. I mean, I can tell you the whole story, but it was this really sketchy, like pseudo spammer in like (laughs) Southern Florida that would like, you know, they, (laughs) you know, we saw a sample email of the things that they were sending out and we were like, wait, you're sending out what? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But they were using Erlang and that was really cool. So I was like, I'm going to keep this job. (laughs) So that's how they were able to send out so many at a time. I guess the concurrency. (laughs) <laughs> oh no, no, we're doing some really fun stuff. We would joke about uh being paid in bleach at the end of our pay periods. Oh, gosh. Just so we could cleanse ourselves. <laughs> but you know, I think the experience with Beam was such that and I had I had this like mentor there who was I believe he was the one who added 64-bit compilation support to Beam to the to the Erlang compiler as part of his like graduate thesis or whatever. And so he was really deep into Erlang and taught me OTP very deeply. And so in the process of that, I was like, got a very high standard for how applications and specially distributed applications should work. Really, or any any server-based application. And keep in mind, like, ever since then, I've essentially been a developer tools developer. Like, I'm not a backend developer. I'm not an ops developer. I'm not DevOps, I'm not platform, I am a DevTools person. So my experience with actual platforms has been OTP. And I look at anything else and I'm like, all right, here are the requirements for like uh, robustness, here are the requirements for ease of distribution, here are the requirements for this and that. And I look at anything else and I'm like, this is garbage. Like, I can't, (laughs) sorry to say it just like so plainly, but it's like, I I don't imagine myself using anything but OTP for stuff like this. But Erlang is such a pain. Like Erlang, the at least the tooling as I remember it was like such a pain to like set up and maintain like old rebar, you know, 10-year-old rebar. I don't know how far it's come, but I don't imagine it being as useful as say mix. So in the process of those 10 years, Elixir matured a lot. Because I know, like, at the time, like, it was not very popular with Erlang folks. Like, Erlang folks were like, who is this intruder? We don't want it here. Like, there's nothing wrong with Erlang. You're just, like, picky about syntax. And, and you know, like, 
Elixir had a time to mature. It had time to become like an older programming language and prove itself a little more. And I was like, all right, let's let's try this. But I think the the biggest thing that drew me to Elixir specifically was the existence of Phoenix because I did not want to work a lot. <laughs> I am a single developer working on a project. I do not have a lot of time. I do not have a lot of people power to spread around. And so having a single framework that would just like spit out most of the application for me and do most of that work while still being OTP based, that was invaluable to me. And so, so just to revisit, you know, the early, early Erlang and Elixir feelings there, like, I think that has totally turned around at this, at this point, I'm sure there's someone out there that's still disgruntled, but for the most part, I think, yeah, Erlang, Elixir folks, very friendly towards each other, working, you know, together for OCP improvements. You know, I, I think that that feeling has, has gone past at this point. But yeah, in- interesting the way you put it, Phoenix, because you're a, a single developer that doesn't want to do work. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So the, so you, you gave some good history there. So your second job was Erlang. I have a feeling that there is a big part of your history that we skipped over there. What was the language you were working on before you came, uh, you started using El- Elixir nowadays? All right. So I spent about five years working at NPM Inc., which is the former company that owned the NPM ecosystem, the NPM area, and also the NPM CLI. And I was the lead developer on the NPM CLI for two to three years. Gotcha. Yeah. So JavaScript, I was very much a JavaScript person. And I, and like I said, I'm a, I'm a DevTools developer. So that's what I was focusing on. So is that how you came to, to Microsoft is through the NPM and, and, and the GitHub and the Microsoft you know, acquisitions? Uh, no, actually, I, I left NPM when they were kind of like imploding as startups are wont to do. <laughs> and they just got acquired by Microsoft like a few months later. I was like, well, great. <laughs> hey, hey, <co-workers>. hey, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Uh, people who I abandoned behind. No bad feelings, right? <laughs> So having maintains, you know, the NPM CLI, which I, I'm going to guess that millions of people have used at this point, you probably have some feelings on on Mix. So tell me, I don't know, maybe in a sentence or two, did, did Mix get it right? How do you feel about Mix? Is Mix a good tool? As a dev tool? As a dev tool, yeah. I mean, I can nitpick about it. I can nitpick about the fact that Mix.ex is a script. I do not like script-based configuration files. Like, they're too powerful. And I think it's good to have, like, a plain old data format that you can read that you know it's not going to be up to any shenanigans and also that you can modify with the with the app. So you can't just do mix add and just add a dependency. But that's a minor thing. Like, I think mix works well enough. Like, I'm happy enough with it as a day-to-day tool. I can add my custom scripts and, you know, NPM isn't actually that fancy a tool. And I'm happy with that. One of the things that I remember about using NPM and then Elixir uh, kind of at the same time, I was I was in the time period where NPM didn't have uh, lock files, not officially anyway, right? Around that time, I was getting more and more into Elixir and it was like, there's a mix.lock file. I'm like, hallelujah, like I don't have to worry about this kind of this kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't have to go use Yarn at that at that point. Yarn had lock files, I believe. Now it doesn't matter because NPM has lock files and Yarn's its own different thing. 
But that separation of the communities seemed very problematic to me back in that day. I'm not sure if it's still still that way today, but those early design decisions with Mix and how to handle dependencies and with Hex and all, they got it right, you know, pretty close to the beginning before a lot of a lot of stuff had to change. Yeah, and I very very strongly remember when we added. I was there when we added the lock files, so that was an adventure. <laughs> sorry, sorry to bring up old old wins. We technically had them already. Like you could have had them. Like you could have enabled them. We just didn't have them by default. Was was that the shrink wrap stuff? Yeah, the shrink wrap, and and actually npm. Like package lock.json is actually just a shrink rack file. It is the same thing. So you, you said you liked Phoenix, and I'm curious about your feelings on Chris McCord being the maintainer and creator of Phoenix, saying, you know, Webpack has caused a lot of problems for the support of Phoenix as, uh, as a project, and they made the whole move to ES build. And uh, I'm just curious about your perspective from the JavaScript community. And as a Phoenix user yourself, how does that fit in? How do you like that? Webpack has its place in history, right? The The reason that Webpack got as popular as it was, and I did spend a few years doing like front-endy stuff right around the time that Webpack launched and right around the time that it got really popular. And really the thing that set it apart from other bundlers and other module loaders was that you could throw anything at Webpack. And Webpack would just accept it. It was incredible. You could have libraries from all sorts of places. And Webpack would just bundle them. It was really good. Like, And it wasn't like it was slow. It's always been slow. But it was kind of this magical machine that you could throw anything. But over the years, JavaScript kind of merged into two, into two different module systems, right? It stop having a lot of different editions of JavaScript running around. You just have everyone kind of working on this like more modern JavaScript. You have people using either CJS or MJS, not like any weird thing like the Angular, like the Angular thing that they were using before or any like bespoke one that someone came up with. So you don't didn't have to worry about plugins for that. And so as you did that, the value of Webpack as a tool and all its power started going down. And I think that's why a tool like ESBuild can really exist now. So you have Webpack and then ESBuild had an opportunity to kind of reimagine what that looked like in a world that isn't such a fragmented JavaScript ecosystem. And when you do that, you have a lot more opportunity for optimization. Sure, it's Go, but it's not just Go that made it faster. It's the fact that there's a lot less ground to cover and a lot more lessons from what Webpack did and probably a less arcane architecture. Like I, I remember actually having to dig into like Webpack and patch it and implement more things on top of it. And it's just like the most Java thing. It's the most Java JavaScript you have ever read. It is incredible <laughs> in there. Like it is the mo most incredible Java code base I have ever read. And it's just JavaScript. <laughs> well, I am interested in learning about your experience learning Elixir because it's, an, it's a unique perspective. You came from already knowing Erlang, 
right? So you already understood a lot of the, the complexity. What people struggle with is immutability. They struggle with functional programming. They struggle with processes and, and concurrency. So you already had the leg up on that. You, you got that. So what was it like learning Elixir then? Was that just really a syntax thing? It was a syntax thing because I'd never done Ruby. <laughs> which is the funny thing. Like a lot of people that come to Elixir are like, well, I know Ruby. This is kind of like Ruby. Let me just learn that. But that's like, I think that's the wrong leg up to really have. Like you kind of expect a lot of things from this that Ruby just doesn't have. I think the the challenging bits for me were a little bit of the syntax, but not really. Like you can learn syntax pretty fast, but more like learning the conventions and learning like the actual like popular tools of the trade, like, the the better conventions around piping, the better conventions like it actually like took me several months to start using with, for example. And with is invaluable to me now, but it wasn't obvious to me how it was useful at first. Even though I I was used to like the whole like okay, whatever tuple thing. But like this idea of like this single tool that could essentially handle a throwing of an error. Like I was actually throwing and catching when I needed stuff like that. And then I realized, wait, there's this wit thing. Oh, it already does this thing that I was doing with throw and catch. Let's just use that that instead. There's a good uh, partnership there now, too, because that was a syntax introduced with Elixir that is uh, now also in OTP proper, in Erlang proper. Yeah, it, it's a little bit different. But yeah, there, there were definitely lessons there that uh, carried through to um, uh, upstream. That's fantastic. And it's a really good... That one's a really good special form, I have to say. With is fascinating. One time I saw somebody with on the error case, and I was just, it just like broke my brain. I was like, <laughs> "You're not, you're not pattern matching on the okay success yeah. case." Like, <laughs> it's like this it feels backwards. <laughs> I'd never thought of this before. I know that you are also very interested in Rust. You know, as we're talking with you, like on behind you, like on the the green screen thing is like Rust Evangelism Strike Force. So I imagine Rust is something that you're also very excited about. I'd love to hear where Rust fits in with your current uh, workflow or the tooling that you like. Elixir is kind of the thing that I do for a useful like project that I'm working on. But Rust is my open source community. So when I, I, I'm not very involved in Elixir as an open source community of people who are like hobbyists and interested in this and writing libraries and stuff like that. I'm not involved at all on, in Elixir on this part. And it's a thing that's that's kind of one thing I like about Phoenix. This is I can just exist. Right. And I can just do my thing. But Rust is the community that I really participate in. It's the one that I like write open source libraries for. It's the one that I'm really passionate about and I care about a lot. And it's been that way pretty much since I left NPM. I was curious if that plays any role with your work at Microsoft. Is there any Rust usage there? Ah, oh, I wish, geez. <laughs> there is like a growing contingent of Rustations. <laughs> Rustations. <laughs> Rustations at Microsoft, but um, nothing, nothing of the sort quite yet. I've, I've, I've tried to make it happen a few times, but there hasn't been a, like a real opportunity. Like I was at one point like, trying to write a utility for Electron folks to write Electron apps using Rust. I was at another point like trying to write my own package manager in Rust. And then I was like, I don't want to write another package manager. You know, I, I got better things to do with my life. I know how that ends. <laughs> 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 I know where this story goes. I don't need to go there again. 
so so I have to ask then. Uh, you know, we asked about Rust at Microsoft, but is is there an Elixir group there? I guess I'm gonna guess no. I have not heard of anyone doing Elixir at Microsoft. You you mentioned like that you use Phoenix for you know accomplishing a problem to to deliver something. And I'm curious if you're doing Rust too. Are you also are you doing anything with like Rustler and NIFs, where you're integrating the two, like having Phoenix call into a Rust NIF? I'm aware of that, and I have thought about it, but I'm like, and and this is like one of the blessings of Phoenix. Like, I just don't have anything fancy that I need to do with it. Right? It's just a web app. It just needs to process a few things, like. The only time when I need any heavy processing is like image processing where I'm just like shoving stuff at image magic, which I don't need like a NIF for, but I would definitely like, if I needed to do some like heavy computational stuff, I would probably reach for a NIF. Yeah. I am also like kind of paranoid about NIFs in general because like, I don't like taking down my entire virtual machine if something goes down. Right. Yes. I would love to hear more about this Phoenix project. You've alluded to a couple of times. I would love to hear more about what it is you're creating that you found Phoenix is like just helping you deliver on. Yeah. So about a year ago, I started a cooperative called Banchan Art. So it is a website where you can go and find an artist who will do like custom art commissions for you. And this is meant to be like a non-exploitative platform where artists can go sign up and sell commissions that won't like charge them up the wazoo and won't like exploit them and like where they can actually have a say and an ownership in the platform itself. Is that a problem in the art- artistic community? Oh yeah, it's a massive problem. Like you see all these platforms like Patreon, like Kofi and all that stuff. And they're all basically VC startups that... They're not really there for the artists as much as they're there for the investors. It's missing a lot of alignment as far as values go, because the artists become a product, not the people that should be getting served. And artists are not, you know, they're not techies. They're not people who had like massive incomes. They're people who like often struggle to make ends meet. And so I wanted to help make something that would help them in the transition to professional artists help them make something of themselves help help them grow help them do that and do that without exploitation so it's like the artists themselves own the platform literally own the platform on top of like the workers themselves there's no like outside investors there's no vcs or anything of the sort so the only other thing that comes up in that space in my mind and excuse my ignorance on this but is is uh, is deviant art is is deviant art like a, a good community for 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 artists? I, I, when I first encountered it years and years and years ago, it, it seemed like it was made for artists. But I know you know how things can change over time. <laughs> deviant art is another one that's just like, yes, they are there for artists. They're mostly for hosting content. Like they don't do a lot of like, let's make you a business now. So they're kind of like, you're starting off as an artist, you kind of want to like start getting exposure, but they're more of a social media network, right? They're more social media than they are a professional. A platform for selling. Yeah. So it's a Phoenix app that you're doing by yourself, it sounds like. Mostly, yeah. I have some, some outside contributors because it's open source. Like anyone can look at the source code. Nice. And then, so I, I presume like there's a small platform fee for helping to connect the two parties, the the 
the customer who's wanting to commission work and then the artist who's fulfilling that. Does that cover all kinds of art, like uh, from you know classical oil paintings to digital art? Like what kinds of things are, are you enabling? So right now it's only for digital art, but we're hoping to like start enabling stuff like shipping physical art to people and stuff like that. Like the fees that you see in this space are absurd. Like we're talking like at least 20 to 30 for some platforms. And then you go into like the gallery space and you're talking about the average is like 70%. Mm, wow. Can you imagine like paying 70% fees on like work that you're trying to sell? That's absurd. Yeah. I thought the Apple store fees were bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I, me too. Like when I was, in, when I was talking to an artist, like a, a, a physical like art artist and she was like, yeah, 70% for a regular gallery. I was like, wait, you seriously? And you go along with it? But they don't have a choice, right? They don't have a choice because there's no alternatives. There's also other platforms. Like I think of digital art, people doing logo design and, and website design. Like there's, you know, Fiverr or some of those other, they're kind of lowest cost bid kind of stuff. So I imagine that's also not geared towards something where, yeah, I can build a business on this. And I can live off of this. Yeah, we are very much avoiding the model of lowest bid. We're very much like our business is how can we get people to actually drive the platform's prices up as much as possible? People who are just starting off who don't really value themselves yet starting like to undercut everyone else and say, no, you're worth more than this. Let's increase the value of everything that you're doing. Let's make it possible and add add things such that it's worthwhile for you. It's worth so it's worthwhile for your for your clients to pay this amount. So yeah, it's very much a it's very much an exercise of engaging with artists. And you know, we have an artist advisory committee that is like continually talking to us about their needs, talking to us about their stuff. And they'll eventually, once we actually get the legalities down, they'll also be owners. So they'll have like a concrete say in the platform, not just a, oh, we just kind of want this. No, they'll, they'll be able to say, no, stop, you have to do this. Your site's currently in beta. Is there anything you can share about when you hope to really take this to the point where it's public and, and being usable by anyone? So we're launching the closed beta, actually, I'm hoping mid-October. I was waiting for the legal documents, which I got a draft for yesterday. So around mid-October, we should launch a closed beta, which means that it'll be open for clients, fully open for clients, but only a trickle of artists will be allowed in. And that's just to start stabilizing the platform because there's always going to be a snag. And there's definitely been snags since I've been like slowly deploying it to like the basic auth prod. So I have like a prod that's like behind basic, basic auth and I'm like running into all the issues now and like, oh good, I didn't launch like this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a cool idea. I think what you're doing is neat. Like my dad, he graduated as a, an art historian because he thought, oh, I want to be a museum curator. <laughs> right? And obviously there's no money in that. So he ended up going into working actually for the railroad, but he he's an oil painter. That's what he does. And he, he also acrylics. But so I, I have that whole awareness of the art world through him. And it's interesting. And so I just always interested, like how this plays out for people like digital artists. Like, I guess I'm just kind of wondering, I'm trying to in, picture in my head what this means. Is this like, I could say, hey, I need a website design. Is that the kind of thing? Or is it more of, I'm looking for like, it's like, what is it that 
the solid use case for this? This would be more like you have uh, character design, you have book covers, you have personal characters that you want to do. Maybe you want to commission fan art. So that's kind of the level that we're looking at here. Like we're looking at often like sub hundred dollar things, but but also often like in the low hundreds kind of commissions. Like I said, like book covers are really popular for stuff like that. Stuff like background images for tabletop RPGs, regular illustrations that you might want to have for a product, right? Like you want to have illustrations for your website you can commission those through through this and say like well i want to have this vibe i like your art style we want to put this stuff on our website can you can you make this little illustration this little illustration that's going to go on this page this illustration probably not website design as such like you could technically do that it's not against the tos but it's not something that you're going to find easily it's not going to be something that they're going to be selling outright that makes sense a lot of illustration work i can totally imagine that yeah that's cool so, so Kat, uh, so I, I really appreciate, first of all, that you love Rust and that that is your passion. And th- that's where you participate in the, in the ecosystem. That's fantastic. And I'm not here to like convince you not to do that, but I am interested to hear from you, from your experience working with Elixir, especially with uh, Bonchan here. Has there been something that, you know, if, if there's one or two things, like here's, here's the one or two things about Elixir that just like really ticked me off or like, or, or what, or did the opposite where it's just like, I am so happy. I didn't have to worry about that. You know, like <laughs> I avoided this whole class of problem because I used Elixir and Phoenix. And, uh, did I hear that you were using surface too? Anyway, doesn't matter. Like, yeah, surface. Cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like what, what are some of the things about Elixir that, that just stood out for you that allowed you the space to just like not worry about other things? Uh, allowed me the space. To, sorry, I, I was here going like the ready to go for the jugular as far as like. <laughs> you could go for the jugular <laughs> if you want. <laughs> That's valuable to know too. Let me start with the jugular and I'll think of some good things to say afterwards as a, as a palate cleanser. There, there we go. <laughs> I mean, this is weird for me to say because for the longest time, I was very much a, a dynamic language person. But after learning Rust and after like learning what a powerful type system can do, the lack of a powerful type system in Elixir has been holding me back a lot. It has made it very difficult to think about the application at scale. It has made it very difficult to have, it has made it very difficult to move with confidence for me. Basically, I've had to do a lot of defensive programming because I'm not sure what this is going to actually return. And that's that's been a real pain. Honestly, and and the existence of null, like dealing with nil, dealing with lack of static typing, trying to fill that hole in my heart with <laughs> dialixer and realize that dialixer is not what it's promised to be. <laughs> At least not for me. It just did not work out that way. And that's that just makes things so much diff- so much more difficult to me. Like I have like every function that I have, I have like I pattern match on the incoming struct type. Mm-hmm. Every single function argument is pattern match on its incoming struct type because I want the er- I want the error as early as possible. And do you wish that you didn't have to to, to do that? That that's that's like your the the poor man's you know like types type checking there or yeah yeah I think it's ridiculous. Like it's not that I wish I didn't have to do that. It's that 
I've had to do that to kind of simulate a static type system mm -hmm. by moving it to runtime. Yeah. <laughs> you catch it a little earlier if you make it the the argument to every single function uh, as opposed to catching it further down the line. So maybe you've heard the, the good news then that Elixir has a funded team that is researching adding set theoretic types to Elixir in some way. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So have you heard that? This is news to you? I have not heard of oh. it, but this is like, this sounds like a blessing. Yeah. Like this, this would really make it for me. Like it would just, it would just change my life. Well, I, I will <laughs> send you the uh, announcement for it. It was announced at ElixirConf EU this, just this past year. We, we haven't seen anything here yet. It's just started as a white paper. And so I think the, the the intention is to continue research into that and to see how that could actually be implemented in, in Elixir. So we don't know what that means. Is this like a full-on type system where it's all in or all out? Or is this, I, th I think we do know it might be a gradual typing kind of thing, like TypeScript, but... I imagine it's probably like what Python did. Yeah. Um, it, so, but who knows, right? Um, so I'll send you the talk so you can uh, get up to speed on that. So, hey, maybe maybe one day, maybe Elixir, to totally uh, making this up, but maybe Elixir 2.0 could be, you know, you know, with types, Elixir, Elixir types dialyzer can can live in its full full final form that's that's uh yeah totally speculative but <laughs> all right so so that was for the jugular what <laughs> what is what is the thing that that uh, about elixir that was just like this is this is amazing i don't have to worry about this what what was the relief that elixir and phoenix gave you so it wasn't the language itself like the language itself it's it's workable and obviously otp like i guess i'm taking otp for granted like otp is fantastic i wouldn't i can't imagine myself developing an application uh, like a server application on anything but otp at this point like i have very high standards for like robustness very high standards for immutability very high standards for distribution and there's nothing out there besides OTP, that really fits the bill here. That really like blurs that line of like single process versus multiple process and really gives you a world of like agent-based concurrency in a way that's like safe and distributable. So aside from that, aside from that totally minor thing, the fact that Phoenix is this kind of whole framework that gives you this like very Rails-like experience without the slowness of Rails and with the added benefits of OTP, that's a dream. Because as a sole developer, well, mostly sole developer with a couple contributors on this Banchan app, I couldn't afford the time or the cost, really, of like writing an entire framework on my own, which is kind of where Rust would have led me, right? Like I love Rust and all that stuff, but there's just nothing for it that even like, there's nothing even that comes close to plug, much less Phoenix. And so that, and also I was really impressed with live view. Like as someone, you know, you, you'd figure from my JavaScript background that I'd be like, gung-ho about writing javascript like i never want to write another line of javascript in my life like if i never see javascript again that that would be the best thing that ever happens to me and that's not what happens at my day job so i'm like <laughs> and so i have had to write a, like a tiny bit of glue javascript but for the most part i haven't had to write any js much less ts for this app and that's been a blessing too. Like, I just do not want to deal with that. I want to deal with a single language. I want to deal with a single language that I think is better than JavaScript. There's there's our quote right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, I do want to mention, you you already teased that this project is open source and you already teased that Surface is used and LiveView. So maybe you can give just people a little sales pitch on why they should come check out this project and maybe even help out. Yeah, uh, I do want to say about Surface, like, you know, I talked about static typing and I think that is really like the biggest value that Surface has brought me. I said, yeah, the syntax is nice. Like, I think like I like things that look more like reactive components like it just looks nicer aesthetically and it highlights nicer and all that stuff but really the thing that that's brought me is the static checking like there's so much static checking that surface brings to phoenix and phoenix live view that is just not there by default and i'm hoping they bring more of that into core yeah we are expecting to see more in uh live view 0.18 as soon as that's released which has you know the the props which is attributes attrs and slots and things like that, which will give more of those compilation time checks, which are really, really neat. I'm looking forward to those too. If people want to get involved with the project, how do they find that? They can go to the project's URL, github.com, bonchan, art, bonchan, and they can just look at issues. There's a MVP roadmap and there's a feature roadmap. And if you find something that you want to do, just join our Discord, which is linked to from our website and ask for something to do or just find something that you find interesting. Well, thank you for coming on, Kat. I appreciate the time you've taken to chat with us. But if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, where should they go to do that? So they can follow me on Twitter, Zcat with two underscores. And that's mainly where I blather stuff. There's also like a bunch on art Twitter account. That's just bunch on art. And yeah, they can follow my stuff there. And I talk about bunch on occasionally on my Twitter and I make announcements there. You can also get announcements on the on the bunch on Twitter. I had to think when we were talking about digital art and artists, like, have you thought about NFTs, you know, for funding the way that you're building oh, no. all this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no joke. Like, we actually have a very specific section of our terms of service that says you're not allowed to use the service for NFTs. You're not allowed to use the service to commission things that will later be used to create NFTs or NFT collections. You're not allowed to, even externally, even if you decide to not use our invoicing and payment service, you're not allowed to do a commission through our website that will later be paid for in cryptocurrency. Like that, those are bannable offenses. Like our artists do not want anything to do with NFTs. We think NFTs are kind of a, they're way more harm than any good that they pretend to be. So we're very serious about like not getting involved with that and pushing away from that, like hopefully very short lived trend based on current, uh, current events. Yes. I had to bring that up as a, a little uh, joke because I, I, I share your sentiment that it's not actually something we want to do for serious. <laughs> so thank you, Kat. I really do appreciate you coming on. It was fascinating to hear about your journey from, you know, Erlang to these, to JavaScript and to other things, and then coming back into Elixir, but Rust, and you're doing a lot of different things and you're involved in a lot of different ways. And I think it's, it's really cool that you're wanting to, like with your Rust activity, you're being very much community oriented and with your art project with Banchan being very artist focused as well. I think that's very cool. So I really appreciate you coming on talking with us. Thank you. Yeah, have a good one. Thank you for having me on. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.